Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar listener Q&A, getting this done later in the week than I had hoped, but hey, when we wake up tomorrow morning, we will get to play Indy 500. It has been a hectic week, an amazing week. Uh, I've seen more people at this track than I have in I don't know how long. It's been a while. And this is so encouraging. I don't have the exact answers as to why yet. I think what we're seeing is a overall rise in interest in motor racing this year. Seeing crowds at IMSA's season opening events all have some sort of meaningful increase in attendance, in ticket sales. We've seen NASCAR have some really strong turnouts at particular events. IndyCar, no stranger to that as well. And this has just been so encouraging to see. Uh, The love for IndyCar. You always expect it at the Indy 500, right? That's the norm. This is our big month-long Christmas. But to see it on practice days and Fast Friday and qualifying weekend and carb day these are just not things that have been the norm for a little while so just want to say a big thank you to all of y'all whether you've been here on site or just been loving and following and playing along through social media um, it's noticeable it's meaningful and as a result I really only have uh, one thing that comes to mind The dumbest sound in the world, which I embrace with both hands and feet. Um, Let's get a show going here. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and our newest friends, Discount Tire. With Discount and Cooper Tires, both aligned directly and in partnership with the USF Championships, where we make our future champions. To think of more than half the field has come up this American Open Wheel Ladder System to be where they are, ready to go and fight for an Indy 500 win. It's a meaningful thing. This is our college system. So when I say thank you to Cooper and thank you to Discount in particular, it's not just because they're partners of the show. It's because their work and their investment gives us the young drivers that we cheer for and root for and love so much who then go on to be veterans and then find their way into the broadcast booth or owning teams or Lord knows what else. Um, Why don't we fire off here? We're going to open things up. going to try and keep this to about an hour. We have more than 3,500 words worth of questions, many of them similar. So our friend, absolute awesome friend, Jerry Siddeth, who I'm going to see here in just a little bit, uh, put all them together for us. So let's go ahead and open with our pal Jim Kaiser, some opening haiku, who says, an Indy Quali haiku, RLL guys cry while the McLaren guys fly and Penske guys sigh. Wow. Ryman haiku. Jim Kaiser. I mean, only on the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, right? So the major news of the week, obviously, being Steph Wilson's crash. 
I'm actually meant to go see Steph again here in just a little bit. And uh, <laughs> I, got a, I got a gift I bought for him at the memorabilia show. Uh, he's probably going to punch me uh, when I give it to him, but that's okay. That's what friends do. Um, big news of the week, obviously, Steph's unfortunate crash. Uh, hit from behind by Catherine Legg, who came upon a pack of, what, four or five cars, all who entered turn one at a slower rate of speed. Catherine came in at a significantly higher rate of speed and basically just rear-ended Stefan. Uh, had it been any other driver, it would have been the same outcome. So this incident wasn't specific to Stefan, meaning he did anything different. Like he jumped on the brakes and caught whomever was behind by surprise. 100% not the case. This pack of cars were traveling barely over 200 miles an hour. Um, Catherine was traveling at a much higher rate of speed. Um, not exactly sure what happened there, uh, but this was truly a case of just rear-ending somebody. And unfortunately, Steph, uh, not only out of the race, but uh, will spend the next three months or so rehabilitating after having surgery to uh, fuse his T12 vertebrae. And I think I also saw or read that they have placed some probably some titanium bits in there to hold things in place. So, um, yeah, we might talk about this more in depth at a different time, but I can tell you the, the general sentiment um, in and around this incident was one of not taking responsibility. And uh, there has been a lot of very private criticism uh, going on, um, which is... I wish that wasn't the case, and I wish it wasn't uh, something that was necessary. Uh, but there you go. Uh, so Graham Rahal driving that number 23, Cusick Motorsports, drawing Ryan Bold entry. I was about to say RLL because it's just so permanently ingrained in my head. But um, boy, if you didn't already have a dark horse to root for, a, a favorite underdog with Abel Motorsports, and R.C. Enerson. I mean, <laughs> crazy to think of Graham Rahal as a dark horse, uh, the underdog. But that indeed is what he is, starting from the back of the pack uh, in a car that he barely knows with a team that he uh, barely knows and see what he can make out uh, from all that. He is, as I've said many times, IndyCar's best race day performer. Sadly, it's usually because he's starting far back in the field. <clears throat> then has to charge forward, having to do that again in a pair of shoes that aren't exactly um, worn in and, and totally comfortable for him. But that will be fun. So we move to a question here about the crash itself. Dan Rice, you say, I know the, the journalist doesn't want to become part of the story, but at that speed and angle, how much time did you have to react Talking about the uh, the photo sequence that I caught of the crash uh, happening just right up the road from me and flying by me in turn one. Um, I didn't really see it happen so much as I saw as I was waiting for Marco and Dreddy to come into frame. I'd pre-focused, which means turning off the autofocus, so I'd position the focus of the lens at a very specific spot I wanted to catch 
not only drivers coming into frame, but we had these these drafting parties going on. So I wanted to get a sequence of cars uh, all in a row fanned out uh, behind one another. And was watching Marco come into frame and just getting ready to, you know, pull the trigger on the lens or on the body, the camera body. And I just saw something kind of weird happening on the top right of the frame that sh just stood out. And again, when at 200 plus miles an hour, things are coming in and out of frame or just sight so quickly that it's hard to parse everything if you're looking through a tiny little uh, aperture as I was. But I just noticed something, Dan, that was creeping across the top of the frame in a way that it shouldn't. And that's when I realized, oh, that's probably cars going not around the corner, but uh, straight in the corner. And so that's when I lifted my head up to see and confirm. And <clears throat> in the time it took to do that, uh, they were already almost upon me. And I was shooting through a, a drop-down gate. And it's a, a hinged steel-framed gate. Uh, there's a cable that runs through the middle of that um, drop-down uh, gate there, and I wasn't super concerned about anything coming through this rectangular opening um, because of the thick steel cable that runs um, right along through the middle of it, but there's still the possibility of things coming through it nonetheless. So you have those drop-down gates to shoot through because obviously there's big fence and steel cables and poles and all that to keep the cars in. But if you're going to try and take photographs, well, having to shoot through chain link fence is a little bit of an issue. So there aren't many of them around the track, but there are enough of them to allow folks to get their shots. And so drop gate was down and was shooting through that. And what I did was start to push myself back away from the camera um, while keeping my finger on the trigger and firing away. And so, uh, yeah, if I was smarter, I would have pushed away about a second earlier, or basically the moment that I recognized it was happening. But, and this is the really dumb part that my wife yelled at me about, as she should, and uh, when I spoke to Dario for the next day or whenever about something, he yelled at me as well, as he should. Um my mind goes towards get the shot. Like you're there, get the shot. Um, the self-preservation thing was not secondary, like I didn't really care about it, but it was a process-based thing. Get the shot, then get out of the way. And as they both rightfully said, Dario put it very succinctly, uh, yeah, uh, your wife visiting your grave and looking on your headstone that says but he got the shot, that's really not the way to go out, is it? Jackass. And, yeah, so, uh, sage advice from, uh, from my wife and a friend. So, yeah. Uh, you say, as for the actual racing, what is it about IMS that suits Renus VK like it does? Three straight years on the front row is impressive. Is that a case of ECR pouring all their resources into making the best possible effort at the Speedway? You say VK's ability to step up on IndyCar's biggest stage? 
Or is it something else? So, Renus VK is an extremely good race car driver. Ed Carpenter Racing, an extremely good team at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, they do indeed. No surprise, as they have for many years, Ed Carpenter has, what, a uh, hat trick of poles? Um, they're always very good at the Speedway. Now, usually they're excellent in qualifying. They're often very, very good, sometimes excellent in the race. We know when everything goes well, they're excellent in both. They, like many other teams, put a lot of time and resources into finding speed, developing cars to be excellent at the Indy 500. Unfortunately, as we have seen, this is not an opinion. This is results-based facts. Ed Carpenter Racing has been an Indy 500 team that also competes at every other round compared to an IndyCar team that shows up and represents strong, like, badass kick-ass at every round. They try, of course. It's not a question of trying. They have talent. They work incredibly hard. Like, But we just know here, Dan, that when it comes time for the Indy 500, Ed Carpenter Racing is going to be a force. The balance is just tilted a bit to where that's kind of the one place where we expect them to be badasses. And Renus is showing us exactly who he is at the Indy 500. I would say that if Ed Carpenter Racing was capable of matching its month of May performance everywhere else, we would see these kinds of things from Rike, Rike, what is wrong with me? VK all the time. Renus Rike or Venus Rike. I wonder if that's like his fake name when he checks into hotels, just so folks don't bother him. Venus Rike. All right, here we go. Um, imagine this kid at a Ganassi, Andretti, Penske, McLaren, right? Um, I guess if I haven't already driven the point home here, Dan, what we're seeing is this kid expressing who he is when given the opportunity to properly express it. And so I love the Ed Carpenter Racing Team. I privately root for them at every round and hope that they do well. Himself, Connor, obviously Ed, for the ovals. Yeah, like I said, imagine VK in a car that was capable of being a front row qualifier at every round. And yeah, um, I fear, I do fear for Renus and his stock value. Because he is being forgotten slowly when we are at the other races because he doesn't have a chance to shine. So off we go. Why don't we move to Green Gecko 119, a.k.a. Ken Pruitt. Uh, not my brother, but kind of my brother. Different spelling, different people. Uh, this will be asked about a thousand times. But where does Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan go from here? Uh... And then we have some similar questions uh, following that. Uh, Ryan Caminiti and a few others. Um, where they're going on the engineering side is probably a house cleaning. I don't know how wide that house cleaning will go, Ken, but there's some infrastructural 
issues here. Uh, there are, again, this might sound like I'm being a member of the Department of Redundancy Department, but there's a lot of talent there. It doesn't matter, though, if you have tons of talent and you're not getting the best out of each other. You don't have the right leader. You don't have the right follower. You don't have the right chemistry. You can have stars on a team. Do all the stars work well together? I don't know. Uh, are some quieter and need to be led, right? Need someone to pull the best out of them. Do you have someone doing that? Um, do you have too many folks who need to be led? Do you, again, there's so many things from a organizational and chemistry side here where you go, okay, um, team composition, most important aspect in motor racing. <laughs> get yourself a Chevy engine, get yourself a Honda engine. You're going to win with both. Uh, you can get yourself a Joseph Newgarden. You can get yourself Kyle Kirkwood. You're going to win with both. You can get a lot of this and a lot of that. The people you choose to hire and the places that you put them in, this is where teams fail or succeed. It's really and truly no more complicated than that. If you use... Team Penske and Chip Ganassi Racing, as an, as an example, Ken. What do they do on an annual basis? They're always making minor adjustments. Oh, this person's really good here, and we could keep them there. But that person has a particular trait that I think would really benefit the other car. The other driver, this person here has some great skills, great work ethic, and they're at this level. Let's level them up. Let's move them up one tier to something where they're going to be able to take those talents instead of them being local on the car they are on. Kind of radiate that across all the cars and make them all better, again, in whatever particular way, whether it's a technical or managerial role, uh, they're constantly looking for ways to not be the same. They're constantly finding ways to move pieces around within their organization to strengthen themselves. Some are kind of keystone, right? You go, hey, Mike Hall, pretty darn good at what you do. Um, you keep doing what you're doing. But hey, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to bring in Taylor Kyle, who's really freaking good at what he does, and we've just gotten better. And hey, Barry Wanzer, you're stupid good at what you do. Keep doing what you do. And But hey, Blair Julian, amazing. Crew chief, championship winning, just the best, right? Cool, great. Well, uh, you're not going over the wall anymore, and you're not attached to a single car anymore. We're going to move you up to one of our multiple team leadership roles, and that's how we get better here. I know I'm going back a couple of years, but just again, examples. Hey, Chris Simmons, you're a phenomenal race engineer. You have Indy 500 wins galore, championships galore, great. Uh, we need you to take your extreme skills, detach them from whether it's Tony Kanaan, Dario Franchitti, or 
latter stage there, Scott Dixon, and we need you to go up and way up. Not necessarily all the way to the top, right? We've got a technical director and we've got some cool people here or there, but we need you to be our, our director of competition. What is that? Well, it's a new role we've created, but we need you to be the person who looks at every aspect of how we compete down to the seemingly dumbest of things. Hey, how do we enter pit lane, right? At what point in time are we braking and activating the pit lane speed limiter? And is there any little margin in there of improvement that can be found? That's a little tiny thing all the way to the biggest items. And they skyrocketed in terms of improvement year to year and brought in a different person to engineer Dixon, won a championship right away, and that person added stuff, and yada, yada, yada. They're constantly looking to develop and grow and tune the internal tuning of the team. People, right? Men, women, non-binary. Just every aspect of the people who make up the team, Ken, that is why the great teams achieve greatness and then maintain greatness. RLL has made a hire that I'm not totally sure about, wasn't sure about it then, wasn't sure about it now. Um, they're a organization, especially on the engineering side, but also somewhat on the leadership side where some changes need to be made, some strengthening needs to be done, some additional tiers at the, the, the top topmost levels needs to be considered. The folks in the trenches, right? The team managers, right? Rico and Derek and Donnie and like phenomenal. Do they have all the support they need? Do they have everything they need? I don't know. I'm not sure. The engineering side, there's great talent there, but I'm not seeing winning composition. I'm not seeing the structure for them to succeed at the highest level. Christian Lingard being on pole for the NGP was like, you know, skies parted, sunshine down, you are good and decent being heard throughout the world for a pole position. And I realized Christian's teammates qualified well as well. But this was like, oh my God, did you see what happened? RLL was really, really fast. It was a shock. That was a little bit depressing because it's like, no, this team can be that. Just, it shouldn't be a total, like, mind-blowing thing. And then we get to the opening of practice and they are by and large back 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 of the field and yeah so it ain't working uh and i'm not saying everything needs to go i'm not saying there needs to be a total house cleaning but it's often a case where folks say you know what we need to make just a a team-wide significant change um more folks asking who should get fired there. I mean, come on, man. Um, Ryan, you're wondering, Kim and Eddie asking, uh, 
what kind of mechanical scrub or friction uh, could be at play slowing the RLL cars. Um, there, to me, was something off very much aerodynamically because all of their cars barely accelerated uh, from turn two to turn three, for example, turn four to turn one. Uh, there was just nothing working for them in a straight line. And so, you know, it's not Honda, right? Honda's on pole, <laughs> right? So we know that uh, those motors make plenty of steam. Um, obviously, if you're scrubbing a lot in the corners, that too is going to be a bit of an issue. Hey, I'm going to grab a call from Zach Brown. I'll be right back. You know, I forgot to mention... <laughs> Ah, uh, one of the things, being a member of the IndyCar media, motor racing media, especially at the Indy 500, it was beautiful, ornate, the most beautiful um, media center I've, you'll see anywhere, at least in terms of views, we're overlooking the front straights, phenomenal. They have a dedicated little press conference area, the front of the room, you can walk up, sit down in chairs and whatnot, participate go back to your desk, and they tend to pump the audio from whatever the press conference happens to be over all the, the speakers inside the media center. So even if you're not sitting up there, you still hear the whole thing. So yesterday, <laughs> I was just telling Zach, like, <laughs> you're savage, man. This is hilarious. Uh, so our pal Chip Ganassi has his annual, I think they call it Chip on the Bricks. It's uh, Friday's. Carb date, 10.30, right? And so head down to the Yard of Bricks. That's where uh, Chip is waiting. Talk about anything with you. And there you go. Get some good stories. Obviously, is the defending winner of the race. It's a team owner, right? Plenty of stuff to talk about. So was indeed planning on going down to see Chip for this Chip on the Bricks at 10.30. And was preparing to do that. And then I guess I'd failed to realize uh, that McLaren had scheduled a press conference with the head of its team, Zach Brown. I think it was scheduled for 10.15. Whatever it was, it ended up starting at like 10.20, 10.21. So was there mildly intentional conflict created with the scheduling of Zach going before Chip and maybe having something to draw the media's attention there instead of going down to see someone who might not be his best friend. I don't know. I tell you, it didn't stand out to me as a coincidence, but it could be totally wrong. During that press conference, someone asked, are you interested in Marcus Erickson if you're going to end up running this fourth car? And Zach, I mean, pew, 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 shots fired. Nothing but shots fired. And I realize this is petty and childish, um, and I th again, I think it's well known that uh, Zach and Chip are by no means buddies, uh, not by any stretch, but um, knowing that Marcus first drove for the team now known as Aero McLaren when he came over here from Formula One, um, knowing that Marcus is indeed, you know, one of the top two free agents, Asking Zach as to whether Marcus is of interest, uh, if he were to go to a fourth car, would indeed be a very valid thing to ask. And uh, <laughs> he uh, 
he didn't let his uh, thoughts uh, fall silent here. Um, <laughs> let me just read this in case you didn't. I think he's probably the top free agent, so I'm a little surprised, given how strong things are commercially, that reading the quotes, that his current team doesn't have the commercial confidence that they can sell the Indy 500 winner and championship contender and sign him up. I understand they probably have a little bit of time, so I'm sure they're working at it. But I wouldn't let him go if he was driving for me. I would have the commercial confidence that I could get the sponsorship. But that's not my issue. So if he does become a free agent, if we run a fourth car, he would definitely be heavily under consideration. Um, shots fired, y'all. And I guess I'm smiling and wanted to just tell Zach, like, dude, you're savage. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that after a month of the most boring-ass press conferences possible, we actually had somebody who decided to make everybody's ears perk up and listen instead of fall asleep and ignore them. So, again, it's petty. I'm petty. Hopefully that's not news. But stuff like this, I'm like, yes, okay, my God. We're all friends. That's great. But, man, this thing can be vanilla at times. So, just a little bit of uh Yeah, anyway, so, um, fun stuff. Uh, let's see, where else should we go here? Uh, Richard K. Buckle asking, still reeling from the Andretti show. Are they sandbagging? Don't think so. Um, we'll, let's go ahead and just cover this quickly. Sandbagging, not a thing. It might've been back in the day when we had multiple chassis, multiple tire vendors, lots of engine suppliers when there was true vehicular variety. And you wouldn't want to necessarily show what you were fully capable of, weren't wanting to set other teams off working any harder than necessary to try and match you. So you'd intentionally run a little bit slower than your full potential to not give away your full potential. If you knew the car was really amazing, try and save that and spring it on them and qualifying and that kind of thing. Um, that's no longer the case sandbagging we can just officially put that to bed as a thing because we don't have enough variety in the cars everyone knows them so well having used them for so long um yeah so put that one to bed altogether uh you do mention though the car is tuned for the race not qualifying maybe say somewhat believable so the question is is the team done uh before it even turns a wheel any possible midweek changes to address a lack of speed? Yeah, they did find a little bit of speed on carb day, but you are right. A team's fortunes are fairly well baked in from that first day of practice on. Meaning, if a team is almost there, really close to being at the top, they'll be able to find the rest to get there. If it's a small amount, a small journey to get there. If a team rolls off the trucks and they are 12th fastest, that's going to be a real struggle. 15th, 20th, 30th, whatever. But it's when you come out and you are off by just a little bit too much where you say, oh, I don't know if we have enough time 
on track and also off track with all the simulation and everything else that we're doing to try and improve the cars. I don't know if we're going to find whatever it was that we fully missed. So, to your point, Andretti cars, not rockets by any means, but seem to be okay, if not pretty good, running in packs, running in traffic on carb day, Richard. So, I think they will be fairly decent. I'd be surprised if one of them shot to the front and was competing for the win. Uh, but, yeah. And a similar question question from our pal Chris Ward about, uh, hey, what a weekend of qualifying, rattlation and heartbreak and validation and everything. You said, after placing only one car in the Fast 12, should Team Penske be worried about race day? Or should we see them up their game for the race? And we've seen Will Power has really been the only one of the Penske drivers who's bothered the, the front portion of whatever day they've been running. Yeah, it. got to admit, they don't know what it is that they haven't done right. I guess that's also true about every team. If they knew, they'd change it and fix it. Um, they have been surprised that they have not been more competitive uh, individually and also in pack running as well. So, I mean, they always tend to show up on race day. Would not doubt that Newgarden and McLaughlin are going to go forward. Power, obviously, within that fast 12, but, you know, the, the non-pointy end of that. But I think they'll be good. I just don't know if we've seen anything to suggest. Watch out. They are going to be the ones to get through in order to win the Indy 500. Um, might be one other little thing here to close on the... Uh, team-wide struggles we have seen, realizing that some have struggled more than others. But Andretti Autosport, not brilliantly fast along with them. Their uh, affiliates at Meyershank Racing, not brilliantly fast. Uh, obviously, RLL, as a team, nowhere. Uh, Dreyer and Reinbold Racing, good, but not amazing. Um, Dale Coin Racing, good, but not amazing. Again, we already mentioned Andretti, um, Penske's too. I mean, part of this, if not a major part of this, why are major teams, even midfield teams, but all, more or less all of the drivers within that team just not succeeding at Indy in qualifying and possibly in the race? Um, I'd say consider the age of the cars. Not necessarily the physical age, but how long they've had them and how much there's left to find to improve. If you've been off the last couple of years like Team Penske, is there some grand revelation to be found by spending a ton of money and you're going to magically cure the thing that's been going wrong or find gobs of speed? Gotta say, there's a trend here that we can't ignore. Um, and for the teams who were good last year and missed the boat this year, they all tried going back to what worked last year and found that, sure, maybe the car feels better, but the rest of the field has leveled up. And so what worked great last year isn't necessarily going to propel you to the top five all of a sudden so 
they're going to be on a bit of a challenge to get back next year. Um, stuff is brutal, y'all. <laughs> the stuff is brutal. Um, where should we go here? Try and start ramping down the show just a little bit. Craig Johnson, you say, according to IndyCar's Instagram page, this is the fastest front row in history. You say the DW12 is no spring chicken in the Honda and Chevy engine packages. Been around for a while. Also, the aero screen is heavy. So what gives? Yeah, I mean, aero screen's heavy, but you have fast and efficient cars. You have full road course maximum power being applied. And teams who know a heck of a lot about the cars and through all of the virtual testing that they do, uh, both computer simulation and the driver in the loop simulation, the big sitting in the chassis on the multi-axis platform and testing and trying all kinds of things in a virtual world with name the drivers, the Scott Dixons and the, the New Gardens. Um, to give that feedback to their teams on what works and what doesn't, to then start by using those good things when they hit the track in the real car. Like, cannot discount the quality, the knowledge, but also I'd say a lot of this is the off-track knowledge too of just refining these cars more and more and more. Chevy and Honda too. Uh, they're making crazy power. Um, this is what we should be doing. And I wish we had another mile an hour or two and we could set the all-time track record. So uh, we will see what is coming in the future. Um, let's see. Lawrence Cunningham, how you doing, pal? Say any word on the uptick in attendance uh, as to what caused it. Uh, hoping, to, hoping to find out more. I did speak briefly with Jim Campbell, who's one of the, the senior leaders of competition at General Motors. And uh, he said, yeah, we've seen this across pretty much all the places we are racing as well. And so I, I do think this is a motor racing thing, Lawrence. Um, not specific just to the 500. So I'm not saying that to take anything away from IndyCar the 500. But as I mentioned uh, towards the beginning of the show, um, motor racing seems to be just gaining in popularity right now. And boy, I sure hope that is the case. Um, he also asked, hey, can you better explain the cooling down of the engines? Uh, he said, didn't seem to matter with Jack on his last run. Um, yeah. If you're talking optimal performance, a motor that is extremely hot is probably not going to give you every last bit of efficient power. Keep in mind, though, that if you've run once, sit for a little while, and then have to go back out 20 minutes, half hour later, whatever it was. I'm not, I'll admit I'm forgetting the exact interval of time between Jack's ins and outs. Um, it's enough time for a little bit of, of heat soak to happen and then start to diminish a little bit. Uh, these are very efficient motors in terms of building heat and shedding heat. So... Also, if you think about the materials they're made from, these are not big, giant lumps of steel that are going to hold on to that heat forever. So would it have been better if Jack had an hour between runs or whatever? Sure. But 
yeah, I didn't see this as any kind of major setback he was going to experience. If he went out and did a run, came in, they put on a different set of whatever, and he went right back out, and I'm really hoping that's not what he did and my brain's not totally farting, um, that would have definitely been a, a slight hindrance. But, you know, as slow as they were going, uh, this wasn't... Sorry, Lawrence, had a little uh, technical problem there, the cutoff towards the end, but hopefully uh, that got you covered off. Our pal Fred Malky asking, I'm curious if they ever found the problem with iLot's primary card. Nope, Fred, they would need to uh, spend a lot more time than they have to do that. They'd also need to do some testing with it, track testing as well. Some back-to-back -back testing to find out uh, if there were specific components that were causing the problem. So, uh, not yet. Uh, Jack Tollett, hey Jack, saying, there's no air screen. You think we would have seen a lap above 236 in qualifying? Basically by reducing the weight, or would it be an aerodynamic improvement, or would it be impossible to know? Ah, I, I do wonder um, if indeed we would have gone a wee bit faster without the old aero screen, both the weight and uh, maybe the smaller wake uh, created by it. So I could be totally wrong, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think there might be something there for sure. Uh, Eric Franklin, I uh, say some nice things about our coverage here. He say, uh, my question is about the old T cars that signified a backup. Are there still, quote, T cars for all the teams? Do they hold one chassis only for the team? And uh, do you have any live shows planned for Road America? Uh, nothing planned for right now at Road America. I'll need to give that some thought, though, Eric, so uh, if it doesn't fall out of my brain. Um, uh, TBD! Uh, T-Cars. So this was a, a phrase used, popular nomenclature for many years in IndyCar, specifically at the Indy 500. Uh, that's what they called the backup cars, the T-Car, the test car. So if you had a problem with your primary one, you'd go to the T-Car. Sometimes uh, it was common for teams to try both, right? Not just a case of having a problem, or if you crashed, you went to the T-car, but hey, we've entered the primary and the backup, right? All teams do that now as well. And hey, maybe uh, we tried something on the T-car that we think might be uh, better than the primary, so get the seat into that T-car, get the pedals set, and the driver would go out and give that a whirl. Um, Rules have changed drastically since then, Eric. Teams are now allowed to have a single engine in their possession. So, whereas teams, obviously back in the day, would have a, a ready-to-go T-car with engine and everything in it, all you got to do again, swap a couple cockpit items over and throw the driver in, not allowed today. So teams can obviously have a rolling chassis if they want, meaning uh, they usually just weld up a steel structure that connects the bell housing and transmission, the whole back of the car, bolt that to the tub. So again, you can roll that spare car around, but it's also not uncommon for teams to separate the, uh, the drivetrain, the back of the car, from the tub and have them stored separately just because you can uh, make use of more space in the transporters. But... Yeah, uh, the idea of we need to go right to the backup car because we crashed, 
Fortunately, unfortunately, you got to get that car back um, after that crash. Hopefully, the engine is still okay, and if it is, remove it from the broken up car and put it into the uh, the backup car you have to build. So that's why we never see a driver say crash at five o'clock and then run back to the garage and jump into another one to get back out on track once they're cleared by any car medical. You know, fifteen minutes, thirty minutes later. Uh, let's see. Uh, at Muppin Smoot says, "How do you like the chances of the Foyt cars?" And is Frucci considered a sleeper, seeing how he is starting as high as he is? Yeah, I don't know if we can call him a sleeper in terms of awareness. Sure, right? He's not globally popular like some of our drivers. But for sure, the team did really well the first week. Didn't exactly have everything they needed on Monday during the practice session there. Decent. Uh, but not overwhelming, overwhelmingly great on carb day. So, yeah, we'll have to see if they get a handle on something that looked like it was starting to slip away just a little bit. But we know for sure, Santino Ferrucci, like Graham Rahal, is all about going forward at the 500. So I cannot wait to see what the kid is capable of doing. Um... Randy Maynard, you say, is there a reason the fast jacker is not used in the short shoots? And you say, is the mechanism too slow? If it could be utilized there, I would think there is a friction, uh, fractional gain to be made in each short shoot. Um, well, you've kind of answered your questions with your own answers here as well. Yes, obviously teams would use them in the short shoots if they were able. The fact that they aren't tells us that, yeah, indeed... This is not something where they're able to activate the system to fall back on itself and then pump itself back up in that brief, brief moment uh, between the corners. And keep in mind that there is a very, very small amount of time where the cars are not actually turning in the short shoot. So, uh, yeah. Sure, there would definitely be a slight gain to be found, but until teams are able to come up with a system that can do this in an instant, um, yeah, not done because it's not possible. Um, Indy Nathan, how you doing, brother? So I've heard different drivers give varying opinions on how the aero changes will impact passing this year. Probably the the one of the best questions of the episode here, Nathan. So do you have a sense of how the majority of the paddock feels about this? Yes, they feel like they appreciate IndyCar's efforts to try and improve passing by giving them more downforce options and the ability to run higher downforce at the rear in particular than they've had. I've not heard a single driver tell me that they feel the issue of being third, fourth, fifth in the pack and the turbulence coming off the cars in front of them all but negating their options to pass as being rectified by these changes there was a hope there was an effort made and changes made pretty clear that uh, according to most this has not been enough to get us as far as they have hoped to make passing more possible for those Again, not in the first or second spot uh, in whatever pack of cars running. So I think 
we're going to see what we watched last year play out as pretty much uh, the same thing for the vast majority of the race. Our friend Mike Hull from Chip Ganassi Racing in his um, strategy calls video that we did said he does think there will be a driver to break away at the end of the race. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch if that's the case. If it's his driver, I'm going to have to ask him, all right, Hull, what exactly did you know uh, that you guys had that you were able to uh, foretell what you did and go on and win the race? But yeah, uh, the drivers on mass have said, uh, again, we appreciate the effort and there are more downforce options to make use of, but we're not seeing anything significantly change our realities on track. Uh, where do we go here? Going to ramp down just a little bit. Got to go, uh, got to get ready to head out of the hotel here and go do something very important. And that's go meet up with my friend, John Doonan, who has flown up from Daytona. He also serves as IMSA's president, flew up from Daytona to do two things. Strictly as a fan, no official business to be done here. If you want to know why I love the guy, these are the reasons why. Flew up on his own dime to go to IRP last night to watch the Cooper Tires presented USF Championships running on the beautiful short oval there. The USF 2000 cars, also the USF Pro 2000 cars, showed up there just to watch them sit in the grandstands, as a fan, not down in the pits with a VIP, whatever, just sit among the fans to watch and enjoy. And then we're going to go meet up at the Indie Memorabilia Show here in about 45 minutes just to go walk around. And I've already spent the majority of the money that I had set aside to spend, but we're just going to go walk around the Memorabilia Show and look at things and fawn over them and maybe buy a couple things legitimately the president of IMSA got on a plane just to come up here to watch junior open wheel racing as a fan go to the Indy 500 memorabilia show and then fly back home like how amazing is that do you see the head of formula one doing anything like that hopping on a plane to go watch formula regional Belgium F4 cars at wherever and then going to the local memorabilia show. I mean, it's, yeah, ain't happening. Um, so, yeah, pretty amazing guy. Um, anyways, sorry, don't know where that came from, but, you know, my show is just one long, don't know where that came from. Um, oh, I, I see where we are going to... Uh, Let's see where we're going to finish the show here. You've set this up very, very nicely, Jerry. Uh, IndyCar underscore John says, if Rosenquist wins on Sunday, who does he drive for next year in the 500? You say five cars for the 500 from McLaren. Seems like a bit of a stretch. If he wins the 500, I think he's with McLaren. Um, I don't know if they truly have the ability to run four cars within their current building and their infrastructure, I, I don't think they want to. Uh, they'd love to if they had their big brand new shop built and all the employees that they wanted. Right now, I can just tell you, it would be a pain. So I think from the operations side, 
you're hoping it doesn't happen. Knowing the value of promotions and sales when it comes to having an Indy 500 winner in your car, I would struggle to see Zach Brown and the McLaren team winning the 500 with Felix and letting him spend the next year, or however much time it was, celebrating that with another team. Because that other team, he will be dressed in their gear. He will be representing that team's brands, whatever they happen to be. I cannot see Zach allowing that to happen. So even if it's only a one-year contract, hell, uh, if they're unable to truly properly run a fourth car, do they subcontract to another team to do that on their behalf, in their colors, in their everything, under their name? Pick the team. You know, again, I don't, uh, obviously a Chevy team to do that. I would imagine there would be a couple of teams that would gladly take a big old check to do that. Um, however it might happen, I cannot see them letting Felix go if he wins. And yeah, just drawing back to the marketing and promotion side, they would be able to sell the living heck out of that and profit from it significantly. So yeah, I mean, I spoke with another driver yesterday, a Indy 500 winner, recent Indy 500 winner, who also shared in the uh, belief that Barring an Indy 500 win, it's hard to see how Felix remains in the team. So, yeah, I think we indeed need our guy to uh, get to victory lane tomorrow. Uh, Jeffrey May. Say, hey, MP, if Elio isn't offered a full-time ride next year, where do you see him driving for next year's 500? You say with MSR cars not qualifying well this year or last, I imagine he would look elsewhere to get a fifth Indy win. He won't be offered a full-time ride next year. Um, I would think he would probably stay where he is. I definitely bet Meyershank Racing would run a third in order to have him and facilitate that. I don't see a Ganassi running an extra car just for him. Uh, we know, obviously, Errol McLaren's going to have Kyle Larson coming in next year, so they're already going to be pretty busy. Uh, in terms of an extra car, Penske is not going to an extra car. Um, Andretti, I, you know, they're already at five with Marco coming in. I'm not seeing anything that jumps out as a equal or better. Um, Carpenter's already at three. Would they run a fourth again? I, I Elio has everyone's respect. Elio has not scared anybody uh, this year or last at the 500. So we all want to see him go get that fifth. I just don't know if there are any teams outside of Meyershank Racing or better that would really go out of the way to try and find the funding to then run him in an extra car for Indy. So I think it's Meyershank Racing. Um, maybe, yeah, I mean, again, would a team below them offer? Probably, but would he actually take that offer? I don't believe so. Simon Roth, you say you mentioned in a recent Q&A that the fuel is now 100% ethanol. Is anything added to make the flame visible? Not that I know of, Simon. Um, two to go. Frederick Wakeman, how are you? <laughs> I got to see you, got to, 
gotten to see you a couple times here at Indy and got to see you in the media center yesterday, and you gave me an amazing book uh, in Swedish uh, about Stig Blomqvist, who is a, a Pruitt family hero, having done all the crazy big things he did for Saab as a rally driver back in the day. Um, Frederick, who's also overcome some pretty significant health challenges to be here. Um, yeah, just awesome to see you, Frederick, and, and give you a big old hug. Uh, you say, which drivers do you think will be there with 25 to go? And question two, is this Felix's year, and why? For his sake, I obviously hope it is. Frederick, ever since Hunter Ray lost his full-time seat it seems like the cartoon anvil of bad luck has migrated to felix so as much as i want to say yes it's his year i just have a particular fear for him more than almost any other driver that if something bad is going to happen if an ill-timed yellow were to ruin someone's day if a pit stop was to be slow and lose a couple positions and take victory away it just seems like felix is on the receiving end of that too much frederick so that's uh my concern there it could absolutely be his year it should be his year. why shouldn't it uh just someone tell that cartoon anvil to uh leave him alone um who's going to be there with 25 to go i feel like we're going to see least two of the ganassis polo I, mean, I know he's on pole and i know it's the easy pick polo just has looked like an old old master of the 500 since he got there i mean the guy's only done a couple of them right <laughs> uh, this guy just seems to have a really amazing connection with what it takes to be fast and efficient and there at indy so Pelot, I think for sure. Erickson's been not exactly right there with his teammates for just a little bit. Um, that's going to be a curious one to see if they can start in the tuning window and stay in the tuning window. Sato, for sure, is looking like someone who is on a mission. After that, Aaron McLaren's been good for sure. I, I like the look of Pato. I like the look of Rossi. We already spoke about Felix. We already spoke about Penske a little bit. Do I think they're going to rise? Yeah, all the way? I don't know. Renus is another one, kind of in that cartoon anvil area where you go, man, looks like things are going well. Oh, geez. I think that kid could take it all. Obviously, Tony Kanaan, I think, is a sentimental favorite. I hope, hope, hope that he's in the window. I don't feel like Tony's going to have an average day. I don't know why, but it feels like it's either going to be amazing or terrible. Um, I don't know why, but I, I feel like the, the race Jimmy Johnson had last year. It feels like Tony's either going to have that, where you go, Ooh, okay, um, your teammates are all doing really well, but we haven't seen you here. Or he's going to be amazing. So I know I just mentioned a lot of kind of predictable or familiar names, but yeah, I think somewhere in there, Frederick, that that's we're going to settle this. I think among the expected drivers, 
the thing we'll be watching for, obviously, are who are the interlopers, right? Like David Malukas jumps out to me as maybe the highest potential of those who aren't all the way in the back to find something and do something significant. Um, this kid's a gamer, and he's really good on ovals. Uh, I hope the Dale Coin Racing team finds a little more for him to be able to do that. So, again, we can talk about lots of other drivers. Canapino, right? I think he has just outkicked his coverage in every way possible and impressed everyone possible. Is that story going to continue all the way to the checkered flag? I don't know, right? Rookies who tend to overachieve in practice and maybe even qualifying occasionally get introduced to a bit of a, a crestfallen moment um, and things don't necessarily keep going that way to the end of the race. But again, we will see. We will see. I That's the thing I love about Indy, right? Who's going to win the race? Anybody who says this person's going to win is an idiot. I don't mean like in a mean way, but like there's no way to know this. <laughs> okay. Like, hey, uh, the final game of the Eastern Conference NBA semifinals or whatever it is. Uh, who's going to win the game tonight between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics? I don't know. All right? It's tied up three apiece. Final game, game seven. Who's going to win? I don't know. Boston's been charging after looking like they were out, but who know? again, I don't know. And that's in a game between two people. <laughs> we got one with 33. Who's going to win? Come on. Uh, yeah. I mean, how's this? Did anybody say Marcus Erickson last year? No. Did anybody say Elio Castroneves the year before? Absolutely not. Did anybody say Takuma Sato the year before that? Absolutely not. And so on and so on. So we see trends. We have hopes. We have the drivers we root for, the teams we root for, and hope they're the ones. But this is the greatest mystery that we have each year. And anybody pretending to know, well, they're just giving you nonsense. So uh, I'm never going to be that guy to say, yep, this person's going to win because Alex Pillow could absolutely struggle to open the race, have to pit early to rectify a handling imbalance, go a lap down, and be stuck in misery the whole time. Graham Rahal could come from back to front through an amazing series of... Uh, things that happen that we can never predict and have the greatest fairy tale finish we could ever write. We just don't know, and that is why I love the race, because we never know the ending at the Indy 500 before it starts. Tuning into Monaco, uh, tuning into whatever Formula One race, you pretty much know the finish before it even starts. Here, well, welcome to this 500-mile question mark. I cannot wait to be answered and hopefully to have a beer with the winner. I, you know, I do fear that whomever wins might be someone who says, no, I don't want a beer. And that would just make me sad for them as a human being. Because if you win the Indy 500 and won't share in a beer with somebody, I think that means you're a member of Al-Qaeda. Okay, uh, John Ranjau, a.k.a. John Wojnar, uh, who I'm going to see here, founder of the Day. Listener group, and here I am again, forgetting to mention, if you want to become a member of one of the most amazing groups of people I've ever met, uh, they happen to start out as listeners of the podcast. John Ranjow formed the Prude, 
name taken after part of my first name and then my favorite WWE tag team, now former tag team, The New Day. Uh, if you want to be a part of an amazing group of loving and funny and generous, uplifting, warm racing fans, I strongly urge you to send an email to prudayrocks at gmail.com. P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S. Prudayrocks at gmail.com. And one of the leaders of the group there, of which I'm told there are hundreds, um, will reach out to you. I said that in incorrect words. I am told the group has hundreds of people. I'm not a member of it, as I shouldn't be. But one of the handful of leaders there uh, will reach out to you and welcome you in. I believe they mostly communicate daily on Discord. Um, but they just have a lot of fun. Great meetups at the track. And they're just truly some of my, f no joke, favorite people in the world. Because they love the things that I love. They are glass half full people like me. And where IndyCar, F1, NASCAR, whatever Twitter, whatever social media platform you prefer can get somewhat nasty. Um, these are folks who say, you know what, that's not us, that's not who we are. Let's just love the racing and our, celebrate our passion for it and be good to one another. So if uh, you're interested, prudayrocks at gmail.com and they'll welcome you in. And that's all there is to it. So final question, John Ranjow, a.k.a. John Wojnar, founder of the Pruday. Talking about the new Gordon John Cock artwork I asked Roger Ork to create for the 500. He says, I need this as a t-shirt. Well, we will uh, get that taken care of, Ranjow. And uh, yeah, we got some surprises coming for you today because uh, you're getting married here shortly to your bride-to-be Trinity. And uh, we're all getting together here in Speedway at uh, a friend's family's house and doing a little party for you to celebrate you. And so Got some uh, some special gifts for you, pal, and can't wait to see you here in a few hours. All right, I got to get this posted. I got to go uh, spend some American dollars at a memorabilia show. Then I'm going to pop by and see Steph Wilson, and then I'm going to go to the track and try and make one or two more videos, and then go and see Wojnar and the Day, and then try and come back get a little bit of sleep, and then alarm goes off at 4 a.m., head to the track, and we are going to find out who the winner of the 107th Indianapolis 500 is in about 29 hours. So thank you all for listening. Thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Discount Tire. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your weekend in the car, listener Q&A.